At some time or another, have you ever had a time in your Christian life where you wrestled with a problem of doubt? Maybe when you were a new Christian, did you ask such uh, questions as, uh, how can I be sure that Christianity is really true? Uh, is Jesus who He says He is? Is He really Him? Is God really there? Is He here? Uh, when I have put all my hope in Christ, could I be wrong? What if there is no heaven or hell? What if all the critics are right and the Bible is really not the Word of God? Are you trying to figure out what's going on in your life right now? There's been difficult experiences you are dealing with. If God is sovereign, why doesn't He deal directly with me? Questions. A lot of questions. You could go on and on with that, but they can kind of nag at your heart. We can think of like Doubting Thomas. You know, he's notorious and has that name, but uh, really that's not fair because every one of the disciples, apostles, really doubted that there was a resurrection, if you remember that. They uh, didn't really believe it was. They didn't even know and believe Jesus whenever He talked about crucifixion. And then, of course, the resurrection... And then you can think even the greatest men of God are men of flesh. And you can have a picture of Elijah and what a great man that he is of the Lord. But you know, the picture is incomplete if you don't remember the time that he hid in a lonely cave. He became disillusioned. He became discouraged. Very doubtful. He wavered in his faith. He had ran from the wicked Queen Jezebel and, of course, hid in that cave after he had defeated the enemy and the, their own particular gods and idols. You can think of Moses. He had doubt. Gideon doubted God. Jeremiah even doubted God. And you know, you go on and on and you see that. And here in our text today, of all people, it's shocking actually, that John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, as it says in Luke 7, even doubted God or Christ. And to doubt is a reality. Sometimes it's not necessarily acceptable. It must be addressed. We have to come face to face when we have doubts. Face to face with even ourselves. And that's why the passage that we're dealing today uh, with is very important. What is doubt? John MacArthur had a really simple (laughs) definition of it I think can be really helpful to us. Some people say it means confusion or perplexity. But just a simple definition is this. Doubt is a struggle to believe. Doubt is a struggle to believe. It's something that prevents me from fully believing. It can be momentary. It can be prolonged. It can go for quite some time. You'll remember the man that said, Lord, I believe... Help my unbelief. 
I've got a feeling everyone here would probably identify with that. We struggle. We struggle with doubts. Some can even be going through them right now. But there is an honest doubt. An honest doubt is a is really a, not a bad starting point. An honest doubt. I don't want ones that are dishonest doubts. But an honest doubt is okay because we have rationality. We have a mind and we are to think. So when something is presented to us, we're to check it out, to examine it, to test it, to discern what is true and what is not. Um, So doubt is connected to rationality. It's just a bad finishing point though. It's a good starting point, but you don't want to finish or have all your life in doubt Doubting God and doubting His plan and His purpose, it's absolutely essential to search the truth out and to examine it, to sort out that information. Even the Bereans did that. They were presented the Gospel. And what did they do? Well, with eagerness, they heard that Gospel, but they searched the Scripture to see if those things were so. They were noble, right? Even more noble than the Thessalonians, it said. Wow, that's quite a compliment there. That's a healthy kind of doubt because what they did is they took what they didn't know to be for sure. They examined it. They looked at the Scriptures and saw. So doubt is very real. Uh, It's most real in immature believers. When we say that, we're talking about young believers because there's so much stuff that they haven't experienced, so much stuff that they really haven't seen in Scripture yet. And the more that they trust Scripture, the less the doubts are there because the promises of God are always true. And we can count on those promises. But as they grow in grace and truth, the knowledge of our Lord, they become to understand and go from one degree to another, understanding that, yes, this is a struggle, but I'm trusting in God no matter what through this. John the Baptist struggled, uh, and as he was exposed to the depth of what the Gospel really meant. So that's what we will uh, we'll be looking at today. Let's uh, grab our Bibles and let's read that. Let's see what we've kind of been talking about is making our basis. Let's stand and read Luke chapter 7 starting at verse 18. (laughs) Disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Father, we thank you for your truth here again today as we look at it. 
may it really be applied to our own hearts and may it be affecting us as we see that this applies not only to John the Baptist but all people of faith and we must be counting on your promises, your truth and that's where we get things sorted out. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we start with the first one, the doubts from the dungeon. And it says in verse 18, the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. The disciples report to John the Baptist. They're disciples of John. Many of the disciples are starting to follow Jesus at this time too, or already have done it. There are a few that are still following John the Baptist. So he is in prison at this time. Uh, and so the, the, the question is going to be brought by two messengers because John is in prison. He can't go and speak to Jesus, but he, there are disciples. And so they come to him, and evidently there um, is the opportunity for John to have visitors, at least on occasion. We don't know how often, but he's definitely in a dark, deep dungeon and uh, has been there for a while. Uh, after he had denounced the sinful lifestyle of Herod Antipas, that is when he was thrown into prison. He addressed the king and his sin, and guess what happened? Arrested, thrown into the dungeon, and here we are. Now Luke assumes that we already know this. It's not even here in Luke. Uh, It just says, here's the disciples of John, and they're reporting... Uh, to John about all these things. All these things are the things that Jesus has just done. One of them being the very last thing was the widow's son was raised to life. He was dead. And Jesus brought him back to life. That's one of the things. And then the centurion's son who was so sick, who was going to die, and Jesus then also did that great miracle with him. Many other things that have been going on in, in, uh, as far as Jesus and His miracles and, of course, His preaching of the Word of God. So they come to John. They tell him what's going on out there after these things. Now, um, they report to him. He hears it. This prison is uh, at, on the Dead Sea, around the Dead Sea area. It's way south in Israel. It's a desert area is what it is. It's a forlorn place. Josephus tells us that it was at the fortress of Machaerus. So historically, the Josephus is a, a Jew, wasn't a Christian, but he has a lot of good historical sources that help and give us background. So it's on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. It's a real place. It was lonely, desolate. And just looking at it from a human uh, side, humanly speaking, the, uh, the ministry of John the Baptist really has ended as far as he's concerned. And it ended in disaster. He's put in jail. He's no longer able to pronounce the coming of the king and the kingdom and repentance. Only a small handful of original disciples are remaining. And so this is where John the Baptist is at. It's important to understand that as we look at this text. The ministry of John the Baptist started out very strong. This is a great man of God. He had come on the scene proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, that uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God was at hand. 
people just flocked by the hundreds, by the thousands to hear him preach. And he spoke uh, on repentance. It was a, a hard message. And then if they were repented, they were to be baptized by Him, showing their repentance, being ready for the coming One, the Messiah, who was going to be coming very quickly. Did John the Baptist know Jesus? Well, he definitely did. If we were to uh, think back um, at the Jordan River when he baptized Jesus at that time, and of course, what did he had said to the people following Him? Uh, John the Baptist, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty good understanding, isn't it? He can take away your sin. This is the Messiah. This is Him. His whole purpose in ministry is to announce the coming of the expected one. To get ready. To get your sins in order. He's coming. So if you look back, and let's look to John chapter 1. Of course, I just mentioned what verse 29 was. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look in John 1.34, I do believe it is. Yeah, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Does John the Baptist know who Jesus is? Yes, he does. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God. Go to John 3, verse 30. He knows full well who he is. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. So he knew the place of Jesus. And it was much higher than what his place was. <laughs> even though he had been in a very important position. You go to Luke chapter 3, verse 15 through 17. Get another picture of how Jesus knew who Christ was, Jesus was. 3.15 says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation, they're expecting, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. They thought maybe he's the Messiah. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand to thoroughly clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn. But He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He is one of judgment when Jesus comes. That was a part, and mainly the part, that stuck out the most. That Jesus is coming and Jesus is going to judge. That's really what His ministry was about. And so we see a heavy one here dealing with fire, Holy Spirit and fire, the winnowing fort, threshing floor. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? And that's really what he knew what he was doing. So you know, he preached on wrath and judgment. If you go back to John 3, verse 7.
think that I got the wrong notation there. Sorry about that. It's in Luke 3. Sorry. Between John 3 and Luke 3, right? We're going back and forth. In Luke 3, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our fathers. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So here's verse 9, Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's John the Baptist. That's wrath. That's judgment. It is at that time now, he is saying. And so, John the Baptist played a key role. He knows who Christ is. He knows what His message is to give. He also knows what Jesus is to give. But he has questions in his mind. He's in prison. Here's the message he's been given. Can you imagine what he's feeling? Now put yourself into John the Baptist's place you're in a dungeon. You are. You have been doing things that are faithful to God. You've been doing things that are righteous. You proclaim the kingdom of God, and now he's waiting. He's been waiting for weeks. He's now waiting for months and months, maybe even close to a year. There's still no kingdom. He's not hearing anything about it. His disciples come to him, and so he gets news of what's going on out there. So questions start entering John's minds. Mind, would you have the same kind of thing? Probably so. Wondering what is going on? Why am I here? What is happening? There's no kingdom, and remember, he's in the very darkness of a prison cell. He's a prophet. But he is human. He is human just like us. Why isn't the kingdom come yet? Is it wrong to look for the kingdom? No. What has gone wrong? What has happened? Is this my reward from the Lord? Is this what I get? I know in the Isaiah says that he's going to loose the prisoners and set free the captives. It hasn't happened yet. So the disciples of John the Baptist come to him. They bring the news from the outside world. John hears about it. John starts thinking, you know what? They just don't completely parallel all the things that people think and say about the Messiah. It's just not paralleling here. It just doesn't seem to add up. He's thinking about this. He's thinking, okay, the Messiah is supposed to get rid of our enemies, the Romans. Why are they still over our nation? It says that when He comes, He will bring judgment upon the unbelievers. He's not seeing that. He's not hearing it. Furthermore, the Messiah is supposed to set the prisoners free. 
Do you see what has happened? John has become a victim of his times and of what the people thought. They believed in a Messiah, a coming Messiah. When He comes, He's going to take care of the Romans. The judgment is going to be done. And we're going to have a capital at Jerusalem. And everything is going to be made right. John the Baptist is thinking that. He's been preaching that there's going to be judgment. People today, in our times, I would say have the same problem. Problem is this. Have you ever been asked this? If God is so loving, then why is there so much suffering and pain and sorrow and disease then? If God is God, why doesn't He do something about it? Right? There's some important lessons here that we can get from John the Baptist about that kind of thought. In back in our Luke 7 passage. I think we covered verse 18 and 19, summoning two of His disciples. John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Are you the expected one? Or do we look for somebody else? John sends them back about 80 miles north up into Galilee somewhere where he's ministering. And they're going to ask him that question. Are you the expected one? Now that's a technical term for the Messiah. The expected the expected one. The coming one. That's the idea. You can get that in many New Testament passages uh, uh, in different kind of, uh, uh, of phrases, but it, if you want to learn uh, how that works, it's in Matthew 3, for instance. This is what the people did. They looked for that coming one. If you're a Christian, you're looking for the coming one now, aren't you? He has come, but He will come. There's a second coming. Well, they looked for that first coming to also be the second coming. It just wasn't in God's plan at that time something else to do, but in Matthew 3.11, what does it say? As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, coming, he's coming after me, he's mightier than I, I'm not fit to remove his sandals, right? Um, look in Mark chapter 1, verse 7. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Same kind of thought there. If you look in Mark 11, verse 9. Those who went in front of of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was like he was he was there. This is the coming one here. And he is the coming one. He is the Messiah. We could go on and go forth and look at um, several more, but if you have those passages, you can look at that. You can also look in uh, the Old Testament to see that 
coming one that's going to be there all throughout, Psalm 40, Psalm 118, many other places. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's been promised in the Old Testament? Are you the one that I've been talking about? Did John have reason to doubt? Yeah, he did. Uh, And we have to be careful with that. We're not giving sanction here. Hey, we need to start doubting. (laughs) That's not what the crux of the message is. matter of fact, when we get done with it, we should see that we really don't have much room to doubt. But how do we get there? We're first human. So let's look at the human aspect here. The human aspect. We're coming face to face with John's doubts, right? John had come face to face with them. What caused him to doubt? What causes believers today to doubt? Do we look for someone else? Well, I hope no believers would be saying that. But here are, uh, I've got about three or four reasons that people doubt. First of all, I think I've got on their personal tragedy. John is in a stinking dungeon for many months. This is kind of like his reward for his faithfulness. He's close to death. This is what he gets for being the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the most exalted prophet of the prophets. He had been built bold before Herod Antipas, the ruler, a powerful ruler in position there in his world. But he is a powerful sinner too. Herod Antipas. And as a result of John the Baptist's faithfulness and his preaching of righteousness and truth, he's very courageous, he's very bold, and he just comes out and says what's going on with Herod Antipas and all the immorality that had been involved in his life and his family's life. And ultimately, that really is what took John the Baptist's head. And as a result of his faithfulness, this is what he gets, sitting in the dungeon in a desert. Now that doesn't seem consistent with faithfulness. And sometimes when we have gone through many trials, not of our fault, but just going through them, and we can say, this is a result of my faithfulness, it kind of brings discouragement. John the Baptist is probably thinking, where is my blessing for my faithfulness. Couldn't the Messiah do something about this? Sure could. Why isn't He doing something about this? Why isn't He doing it now? If things don't go the way that we think they should go, even though it would be righteous, can it cause doubts? Well, we might start thinking, I wonder if He even cares. Well, that's a stupid question. Because if we know the Word of God, we say, yes, He does care. Um, The thing is, negative circumstances come in our lives. How are we going to handle those negative circumstances when they arise? Do they arise? We struggle with them a lot. No matter how negative they might be, the divine purpose of God is involved. And He's going to do what He's going to do in that situation for His purpose, 
for His kingdom. And when we know the Word of God and those times arise, even in the times of personal tragedy, we can proclaim the glory of God during that time because we know He's still holding us up. Or we can start getting mad at Him and asking Him why and, and why would you ever do this? But yet, we know a true God works everything for good. So, that's one reason why John the Baptist had this kind of doubt. There's another one. It's called popular influences. The way that other people think. And we tend to be trapped into the way the world thinks or even other Christians think. If you remember, there was a centurion that we studied um, a few weeks ago. And the centurion had a son. The son was really at a point of death. He's, I said son. I've said that's centurion's slave. Okay. Uh, I think of the woman's son and I get that confused. But will you forgive me? <laughs> the centurion, Jesus said, after it was all said and done, Jesus did the miracle just amazingly, just like that. The slave was healed from a distance. Jesus wasn't even there, but He healed him. The centurion was said to by Jesus to be a man of such great faith that he had not seen any kind of faith like that amongst the Jewish people. Wow! They had the oracles. They had the Word of God. They had the Old Testament. And they read it. Only one thing, they had an understanding of what they thought it said rather than what it was saying to the ultimate truth. What's the advantage of this centurion? Well, he wasn't amongst this society. He wasn't in this culture. He had heard about Jesus and what He did. He just believed it and He knew He could heal His slaves. Now that's amazing. The the popular tradition at that time was that the Messiah was to come. We've already talked about this. But He was to crush the bad, evil enemy. The Romans, their empire. He would put into place His kingdom and then He would bring in health, and wealth and prosperity, everything would be perfect the way that it's supposed to be. That hadn't happened yet. John the Baptist is putting this together saying, what, what's going on? Are, are you really the one? It's, it's not going on. My disciples tell me that nothing has happened yet. Nothing has happened. What's, what's it, what does it take? What's going to happen? Is this, have I understood this wrongly? Why doesn't He knock off the Romans? Man, that's what the whole uh, nation of Israel wanted. How would you like to be under the Russians or Muslims today? We wouldn't like it, would we? We would look for a deliverer. But what does Scripture say? Well, I don't know, but all I know is if there's really a Christ and He cares, why is the world so messed up? The Lord really loves people. 
then infants would never die. People would not be starving across the world. It would not be the diseases. There wouldn't be that kind of death going on and war. But the fact of the matter is, that's always gone on since sin came into the world. And it will until Christ comes back and sets everything right, right? Why doesn't Jesus just stop all this? Why is there so many different denominations and why are there so many different errors in the church today? False teachings and such. Why is that there? you think Jesus would at least knock all that out? Have you ever asked that question? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us He's going to do that right now. He said, well, yes, it does. If He's that kind of loving God, but you look in the Scripture, and here's what it says. Evil will get worse and worse. Here's what Jesus said. You know, He talked about here will be a Christ, somebody saying they're Christ. There will be somebody saying they're Christ. There will be Antichrist. Many people proclaiming things. It's going to get worse and worse. Lies and deceptions are going to fill the earth. That's what it says. I would like to bring out something really juicy good. And I do. Because there's something even much better that's going on. The kingdom is now. But there's a kingdom not yet. There's an inward kingdom that we do live in, and that's where our joy is. And, you know, just meeting with God's people, there's plenty of joy there, isn't there? You know, I live for this day of the week to come together with God's people, and we get to rejoice together to sing and pray and give. And that's what, really what worship is. You know what that, what that is? It's giving. So I don't get anything out of this. Man, I've heard that a lot of times. You're not coming here to get. Now granted, here's the Word of God. It's presented. You say, well, I don't feel good. The thing is, you are here to give God your absolute, total worship to Him. That's why you're here. It's not even to come here and listen to me or sing the songs. That's all a part of it. It's all revolving around the Word of God, but it is for you to give clear worship to our Lord and Savior Christ. That's our purpose. God has a purpose. It's that He be glorified. But hopefully you get the Word of God served out on a plate of some things that you can eat, partake of, take home with. That will be a part of your life. And if that's not coming to you, I, I apologize. I do the best that I can to put this out. I'm just human. The Word of God, though, does have power. And if I did nothing but just read it, the power of the Word of God should be coming to you and realizing that this is another thing that I can stick in my head so whenever those times come that I'm challenged, I can draw from these. Line upon line, precept upon precept. When you leave here today, you're probably not going to remember one 
statement that I made other than the, the text that might we might have been dealing with. You're not going to remember. But as you sit here from week to week, as you read in your own studies throughout the week, all of that is built and it gives you a foundation, doesn't it? And so that's what happens. Habakkuk came to a right conclusion after he questioned God. He was wondering why God wasn't, first of all, bringing judgment upon His nation because of their idolatry, their wickedness. Habakkuk was a prophet. But he's also wondering why God also was not delivering them from everything too. And he comes to the conclusion at the end of it, and something like as if everything goes haywire in this world, everything that you count on goes in reverse. If all the things that are normal just collapse underneath me, I will still trust my God. Is that simple? It's very basic. See, things didn't go the way that Habakkuk was thinking they should have been going. Right? They weren't. But they will. And God has already promised that to us. Doubts arise because people wrongly expect things. We do. And there's popular influences. And we think that that's the way the plan ought to be. Where it's really not God's timing. It might be God's plan, but it might be later. So really John the Baptist was victimized by the popular viewpoint. Another one, a third one is he didn't have full information. You can doubt because you don't have full information. John didn't have the information that Jesus would come and then be rejected, the Lord then would turn from Israel to the Gentiles. You have this time of the church that's gone on since the Holy Spirit came into the body. And here we are 2,000 years later, and He hasn't come back yet, has He? But we don't give up on that fact. John didn't know that whenever he would return at that time, then he would set up his kingdom. John didn't know that. Now, it is in the Old Testament, but it is hidden. And nobody really knew that. It's, it's called a mystery. And Paul talked about that, mysterion. But in the New Testament, mysterion, by his context, means something that was hidden before is now revealed. Why is it revealed? Because Jesus not only has come in His person, but He died, He was buried, He arose, and He ascended to the heavens. He is Lord of lords, and He will come back. John the Baptist didn't have all that. None of that had happened yet. There wasn't the crucifixion, the dying for our sins and such. There's a glorious kingdom that is to come. But there were a lot of things that John the Baptist did not understand yet. It was incomplete information. And that's what can make us doubt. If you go to prophecy, in the body of Christ today, there are if you put a hundred theologians together, 
you'll probably get a hundred theologians who come forth with different angles of how the Lord is going to come back and what all is going to happen. Some of them might be very similar, but others might be really far differently than others. And the way that I explain it is that the revelation of Christ in the book of Revelation and in the book of Daniel and First and Second Thessalonians and then the discourse by Jesus in Matthew 24 or Luke 21, they're talking about times that are coming and times of the end when Christ comes back and the judgment and such. But you know what? We still don't know for certain how all that's going to work. We have an idea and we can use Scripture and another guy might have a different idea. But, you know, it hasn't happened yet. We're looking at the future. Believe me, the Jews were looking at the Messiah and they had all sorts of different angles of what's going to happen when He comes back. So, you know, prophecy is a good thing and it's a good thing to study. You'd be blessed by it. But still yet, there's going to be variances and differences that all people have in the body of Christ who are very good in their theology. But it still comes down, there's going to be disagreements no matter what. It's because it hasn't been settled yet. It's not done. God is clear In His Word, we are to read the Word. We're to learn the Word. We're to know the Word. We're to trust the Word. Blessed is the man who takes the Word of God and then meditates on it day and night. And that is what will take care of understanding the purpose of God. It goes much further than what humans think God is. See, we think God is one way when... Really, you go, you know, that's really not Scripture. What have we just done? We've made God an idol. We've made Him out to be the way that we want Him to be. He's got a, he's, he's a loving God. He's not a judging God. Now we're in trouble because we're eliminating much of what the Bible says where God will judge sin. And He will judge sinners and He will send them to hell. That doesn't sound very favorable though. So people don't like that. That's why you have liberal churches. So they don't believe the Bible, the inspired text. They don't believe in heaven. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in in a God who's sovereign and He's in absolute control. What kind of God do you have? They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't even believe that Jesus is the only way. People say, well, that's too narrow. And that confronts against way too many other religions and that will hurt their feelings. So we shouldn't say that. Jesus was lying then, wasn't He? <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way. Well, the next thing is wrong expectation. This also causes doubts. We see there is personal tragedy and popular influences. Not having full information can cause doubts and wrong expectations. We did a Tuesday night Bible study for a couple of weeks dealing with expectations. We have our own expectations we put here, and then when it doesn't happen, we get disappointed. And it happens to everybody. We get disappointed quite frequently, as a matter of fact, because it doesn't happen the way that we saw the way that it was supposed to happen. John preached repentance. John preached God's judgment. Was he wrong in that? No. That's what he was called to do. He did it. He did it faithfully. John knew how the Old Testament ended. You know how the Old Testament ends in Malachi? 
the very last section there. It's the last warning of the Old Testament. It's the day of the Lord. It's the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's judgment. That's how the Old Testament ends. Then the New Testament starts with good news. The Old Testament is really bad news. John the Baptist preached about fire. He preached that he'll either he will leave neither root nor branch. That's what Jesus will do. John the Baptist was saying that, and I think he was thinking that was going to happen any moment. This is the day when the wicked are going to be trodden down. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to judge it. That's the way that John saw it. It wasn't happening. So do you see how expectations can cause doubt and despair? disillusionment. We say, Dennis, okay. You say it's okay to have honest doubt. I have a lot of doubts though. What about those doubts? What do I do with them then? Well, what did John the Baptist do? Verse 19, summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord. When you're in doubt, who do you go to? You go to the Lord. Do you go to your psychiatrist? Do you go to your psychologist? Do you go to the pastor or a friend? Well, you know, some of those things could be okay. But who do you really go to? Who are you really trusting? Doubt crept in to John the Baptist. The way that we understand that, his faith is really proven here by the way that he reacts to his doubt. John the Baptist still has faith. How does he react? He goes to Jesus. How does he go to Him? Well, it's the disciples of His that He sends to Jesus that's going to dispel his doubt. He's asking Jesus, whom he believes, and at the same time is doubting, to resolve his doubt. That's who you go to. He knows that Jesus is the only one who can resolve this. His disciples that follow him, they can't resolve this. So he's struggling against a weakness that's in the flesh. He's weak here. We understand. He goes directly to the Lord. The worst thing you can do when you have doubt is to keep it to yourself. And then one day, tell the pastor or your husband and wife, husband or wife, or somebody in the church, say, you know what? I don't believe any of that stuff. And I want to tell you, I'm an atheist now. Have you ever had that happen? I have more than a couple of times. What? After all the things that you did and said and confessed, and now you're saying that? Did they go to the Word of God? They came to me 
when they came to you, came to somebody else and said that, whammo! I mean, that's like a, a punch in the face. You know, it's it's hard to take at first, and you you really like to say, how did you come to that conclusion? You can reason all you want, but you know what? I've found out that I can't talk anybody into anything. I'm a terrible salesman anyway. But I will tell you, I don't, there is no pastor and there's no counselor that can talk anybody into anything. They can direct them to the water. They can't make them drink. They can dunk them in there, you know. That still doesn't mean anything. It's the power of God that's going to change that person's thinking, whether it be salvation or, wow, what happened? Have you gone crazy? If you want to get doubt resolved, where do you go? The Word of God. The Scriptures. Start looking. Look at those promises. Here's what God says. But here's the way I feel. So the way I feel trumps the Word of God, right? That's usually the way that it works. But it really shouldn't. The Word of God should always trump the way that we feel. Because our feelings come and go. Right? There's ebb and there's flow. Up and down. The feelings are like that all day long. So we finish our text now. And in verse 21 through 23, we get the answer. Um, Of course, you know, when the disciples went to Jesus, what did they say? The exact same thing that John the Baptist said. John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Are you it? Are you him? So here we go. And look at the answers that come from the old prophets. These are new answers. And Jesus puts it on display. At that very time, He cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits He gave sight to many who were blind. And He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at Me. This is remarkable. This is dealing with the actions of Jesus. They come to Jesus. They say what John the Baptist told them to say. They ask that. He doesn't begin by talking. He doesn't begin by repeating His claims. It's almost like He says, watch. Stand right there and watch what I do. Luke says, in that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and many are blind. He bestowed sight. So He started with actions. He just did that. Now look at the answer that He gives. Verse 22, He answered and said to them, Go and report to John. Okay, here, what you just saw. What you heard. You are witnesses. Now, do this. You know what he said? Go and tell John what you saw, what you heard, and then tell him this. He quotes Isaiah 35.5 and Isaiah 61.1. 1. 
Now those texts aren't exactly word for word what you see in Luke as you look in Isaiah here, but it's the exact same passage. It's that same thought, that idea. So if you go to Isaiah 35.5, by the way, John the Baptist knew the Word of God, didn't he? He was the greatest of men. What a prophet he was. And he knew the prophets. In 5 it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. 6 says, The lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of mute will shout for joy, for waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. This is speaking of what he was immediately doing. There is an utter fulfillment the second time he comes. He speaks about the land and the thirsty ground, the springs of water. He's talking about people. But he was doing this. The first five verses all deal with this and rejoicing with singing the majesty of God. Is there. This is the coming of the Messiah. And he says, Hey, John, uh, I want you to remember what does Isaiah 35, 1-5 mean? What does Isaiah 35, 5 about? The eyes of the blind open. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Do you see anything about judging there? No. He's talking about, here's what you're going to see. And then look at um, Isaiah 61.1. Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. There's the good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. There is another phrase, and that's what would have caused John the Baptist the problem. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Jesus doesn't say that there. (laughs) Because those prisoners, and really it's ultimately been delivered from sin. That doesn't happen until Jesus dies. John the Baptist didn't live to see Jesus die, did he? John the Baptist shortly will die before Jesus does. John the Baptist will. So those two passages deal when when the Messiah comes, He's going to do these things. Just what He did in front of John's disciples, they see it. They see it going on and on and on and they go right back and they say, here's what He told us to tell you and here's what He did. There are other passages. Isaiah 26.19 can deal with that also. He sends those two disciples back to John to tell what they saw. This was the evidence that the King has come. The Kingdom is being fulfilled physically, spiritually. Telling the King is here. That's really what it is. Here's what Isaiah said when the king comes. There's going to be the healing of the blind, the deaf, and the lame, and on and on, right? John the Baptist, he knew those passages, and I'm sure he read the context of all of them, what was before and what was afterwards. And he goes. Now, the very last verse, and we're going to take this and make this our application, we're done.
Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. John had to believe what Jesus had done was in fulfillment of the Word. Did it fulfill Isaiah 35? Isaiah 61? Did John have to shake his head and go, hmm, was it there? Yes. Was it hidden? Not really. But they had wanted it to be now. I mean, fully. John needed to understand that until he could understand what's happening in his own life. When he saw what Jesus fulfilled, now he can say, okay, I get it. You see, it was the what, what turned him back to right thinking. Truth. Oh, it was there all the time. Why didn't I think of that? Do you think that solved the issue of his doubt? No doubt. Sometimes you have no idea what Jesus is doing in your life. And you turn to Scripture, you think about Jesus, and you look at what He's already done. And what He's done in fulfilling His Word. And you come to a day when you really need that and you turn to that in your even on your own thoughts that you have had your foundation on. Jesus doesn't just make claims. He is a part of your life. He is your life. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Believe it. Trust it. No matter what, you have everything you need to get through this life. Jesus fulfills Scripture. Jesus said, I will not break My promise. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble, but who embraces Christ in faith because of the Word of God. Blessing is for time and eternity. John the Baptist, I can see why he had doubt. What about our time? Or humans too, but you know what? We don't have the excuse that John the Baptist had. You see, we have full information. We have Jesus who has been crucified, dying for our sins, then being buried, then being resurrected, and then ascending to be Lord. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. We have the completed Word of God. John the Baptist, all he had to draw from was the Old Testament. There's enough there. But we have been blessed to have the Word of God. And the Gospel of the Kingdom has already been here. And we know about the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and His Lordship. We know about His completed Word of God that were uh, written most by the apostles and men of God that were inspired. We have everything that we need. We don't have an excuse to doubt those things. There's reasonable things that we need to examine and test, but we have everything to test right here. So therefore, don't end in doubt. It can be a good place to start, especially like the Bereans, to examine everything. But 
as you grow in the Lord, your doubt should be so waned that you go, oh, wait a minute, I'm not thinking correctly. Here's what God says. If you know the Word, folks, there is no reason really to doubt who God is and what His plan and purpose is, even though you don't know how it's coming about and why it's coming about. That doesn't matter. What matters is He is doing His thing and perfectly well. I think that's great news. Do you guys think that's super news? Go to Christ. Go to His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this special day that we have. A special day to worship You. It has been an honor, Lord, to come into Your presence with You and Your people and help us to exhibit the kingdom in our own lives. Help us to keep from doubting who You are or what You're about or what these things are and really trusting in truth and promises. And we know that those things will come about. We know we have questions. We are humans. We don't want to eliminate that. But at the same time, we have all the answers that we ever need to live by. Thank You for giving that to us, Lord. And we give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.